it was fun to see that picture of Jeremy, but I thought he was going to England to perform a wedding. I, I don't <laughs> How many saw that, or at least clips of it, or, okay, on the news or something? All right, well, there you go. Anyway, <laughs> so we get news from, from a field, you know. But for quite some time, um, news ha was arriving from the Middle East telling about a large, expanding nation. In fact, a very wicked and brutal, even barbaric nation, a, a people that were especially cruel to their prisoners, uh, torturing, even beheading their prisoners. Uh, anybody that didn't like them. Everybody in the region despised them, and there was much fear towards them. Does that sound familiar? Maybe thinking of ISIS or something like that. Well, actually, what I'm referring to is are events that happened around 750 years before Jesus was born. This wicked barbaric nation I'm referring to was not ISIS, but was Assyria. Uh, and Assyria is basically where present-day Iraq is. And the center of power was in Nineveh, which was about 220 miles northwest of present-day Baghdad. So as you follow the news and so forth, it kind of gives you a picture of where things are. And it was to the north of Israel, kind of the north and east of Israel, in upper Mesopotamia, ironically in an area where ISIS considered to be their center of power. And God's people in Israel were very aware of Assyrians' brutality, and the Assyrian people, the Ninevites, were despised and feared. Now stories are something that we can readily identify with, and in the Bible, God uses stories as a way of helping us see ourselves sometimes, to see ourselves in God's bigger story. And I think that's the case with the story of Nona, Nona, Jonah. <laughs> uh, we were just with relatives and she went by Nona. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway. Um, but God called um, Jonah to go to the upper Middle East, to Nineveh, to a preach judgment to the Assyrian people to warn them that they would be destroyed if they didn't repent. Well, actually, they didn't even have that option. He, they were being warned that they would be destroyed because of their wickedness. Now, when we think of Jonah, oftentimes we think of the big fish, don't we? Whatever the fish was, a whale or big sturgeon, who knows what, that's not the point. But there are some significant lessons in the book of Jonah that were for Israel and for Jonah himself, uh, particularly at a time when the nation of Israel uh, was suffering much misery and death on its norder, northern border with Assyria. And these are timeless lessons also for we, the church. Now, Jonah's hometown was near Nazareth in Galilee, and he was a prophet of God. He appears on the scene not too long after the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. But the book of Jonah is not a prophecy per se, like some of the other uh, minor prophets of the Old Testament, but rather it's a story about the prophet Jonah. Actually, Jonah didn't do anything really great. So he's not a hero to admire. And he's a bit incompetent, too. Uh, even when he does things right, he does it wrongly. So perhaps it's somebody that we can each identify <laughs> with in some cases. But the whole time, God is working to accomplish his purposes in Jonah and through him. Now, we don't have time to read the whole book of Jonah, so I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis. In chapter 1, God commissions Jonah to preach judgment to the wicked people of Nineveh. But Jonah rebels, and he rebels against God's plan, and he runs the other way. He boards a ship sailing the other way, in fact. 
Then God sends a great storm that threatens the ship and everyone on it. Well, soon enough, the sailors learn that the storm was a result of Jonah's disobedience from his God, our God. So the sailors pray to Jonah's God for forgiveness, and then they toss him overboard to save the ship and their skins. You know, forgive us, Lord, off he goes, okay. And the storm immediately stopped, and the sailors, this pagan group of guys, believed God, our God, and worshiped him. And then the chapter ends when uh, God prepares a great fish to swallow Jonah. So we begin chapter two with Jonah having run away from God in the belly of a fish. He comes to, so to speak, he realizes that what he's been doing is wrong, it's against God, and that God's doing is to have him thrown overboard and then a, a, a big fish. And then he prays to God from within the fish and God delivers him when he's coughed up on the beach. Now, I don't know what pictures come to mind, but being coughed up by a big fish on the beach, it doesn't look pleasant to me, okay. But anyway, God, or rather Jonah learned his lesson and so now he's ready to do God's will. So in chapter three, the Lord again, a second time commissions him to go and preach judgment to the wicked people of Nineveh. Jonah obeys this time, goes to Nineveh, he proclaims God's message that they would be destroyed in 40 days. Well, the people of God, amazing thing happened, the people of God, or sorry, the people of Nineveh believed this message from God via Jonah, and they're moved to repentance. Everybody, even the king, the, the king declares mourning and fasting, and he says, hopefully, if God, if we do this, God will listen to us and relent from from uh, the destruction he was gonna bring upon us. Well, the Lord does take notice and he shows mercy to the Ninevites and relents of the disaster he had intended to bring on them. Wow, Jonah's mission was a success. Wish we could have said that about Birmingham. We, we haven't seen loads of people come to Christ. Very few, in fact. But here, the entire city, I, I don't know the, the numbers, but I would think it's in hundreds of thousands anyway, which is a big city for that time. But these were souls that were headed for destruction and they were now saved. They had come, uh, they had been delivered from this um, destruction that, that Jonah had preached was gonna happen. Well, you'd think Jonah would be kind of excited and elated about that, uh, but we're in chapter four, we're surprised to see that he was actually quite angry. Well, why was that? Well, because it, the Bible says God, or rather Jonah knew that God was gracious. He knew that God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and that he would be merciful to the Ninevites. And Jonah didn't like that. And he was a prophet of God, okay? I don't understand that. But anyway, in fact, he was so angry he wanted to die. So then Jonah goes outside the city limits and sits down to, to watch what will happen next. Well, Jonah still hadn't learned his lesson and so God teaches him an object lesson. First, he provides a plant to bring shade on him, bear in mind this was the desert, you know, and uh, the shade makes him happy for a day, but then the next day God sends a worm, some sort of bug that eats away at the plant and destroys it, okay? There's his shade gone, and not only that, God sends a scorching wind from the east that just kind of exhausts Jonah to despair. He sulks, and again, he wishes he could die. And then it's kind of interesting, the whole story of Jonah ends with a question, when God says to Jonah, and this was what was on the sc uh, screen earlier, he says, you're angry about a plant, and indeed you felt sorry for it. He, was, he had pity, so to speak, on this plant, 
But should you not have had similar pity on the 120,000 people of Nineveh who are living in spiritual darkness? So that question is left there hanging, and that's a, a question for us. So I'd like to look a, a little bit at some of those things that, uh, that God has brought out to Jonah, to the Israelites, and, and to ourselves uh, through this uh, story of Jonah. He ran away from God because he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He disobeyed God. Have you ever disobeyed God? I know I have. He did it for several reasons. I think one was he was likely afraid of the Ninevites. I mean, after all, I said earlier, they were quite a brutal people, and uh, he ran to maybe avoid danger to himself. He wanted to save his skin. I think another reason he was disobedient, his view of God was limited. Now, Nineveh, as I said, was near Baghdad, perhaps a couple of hundred miles away, but Jonah caught a ship toward Tarshish at the entire other end of the Mediterranean Sea and then the southwest side of Spain, as far away as you could get in the known world from Nineveh. He ran the other way. It's, it's as if he was thinking, well, if I run away, God won't know where I'm at. Well, that was kind of dumb, right? <laughs> But God certainly would know where he's at, and we see even in the first chapter that God is all-powerful. He commands the, the wind and the waves. He has power over the lives of the sailors. They, even they repent. He commands the big fish to swallow Jonah, and obviously he has power over Jonah's life. So his view of God was limited. But he also had a constricted view of God. So what do I mean by that, a constricted view of God? Well, the Israelites, of course, Jonah was an Israelite, they had a constricted view of their chosenness, okay? They knew they were God's chosen people, but they, they kind of had a narrow view of that. They viewed the rest of humanity, the Gentiles, as outcasts, as beyond God's saving mercy, uh, basically out of luck as far as blessings were concerned. Uh, certainly, they would have thought that God did not care for the Gentiles or the other nations, but yet they failed to see that throughout the whole New Testament, the Old Testament rather, starting in Genesis 12, where God promises that through Abraham, all the nations, the people groups on earth would be saved through the seed of Abraham, which we now know, looking back on that, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, they failed to see that they were to be a light to these nations so that people would turn from their false gods to the one true God that was worshiped by Israel. So Jonah ran away from God, and he wanted to keep God at a comfortable distance. Sometimes we're that way, too, and we try to avoid him, and we try to avoid what he's asking us to do. But face it, you can't run away from God, right? Sometimes our view of God and his purposes is limited, or maybe even distorted. Um, Irene and I have been there 23 years. We've had many challenges, very little fruit, as I mentioned. There are so many Muslims that are deeply ingrained in their beliefs, quite contrary to the gospel and a very different view of Jesus Christ as to who he really is. And I have to admit that over the years I go through phases, but at times I've become very cynical. Does God really care about Muslims? Does he really want to save them? You know, can he really save them? It seems like an impossibility. Well, he can and he does. But it's very important that we don't have that limited view of God. It's important that we study God in Scripture, but also that we get to know God through Scripture and through prayer and, and following Him in obedience. We need to learn about God's character, His purposes, and His promises to guard against this unbelief or this distorted view of Him. 
You know, the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. Any. His revealed will in Scripture is that he's not willing that any should perish, but that he desires all people to come to repentance. Sometimes we're afraid of doing what he wants us to do. So let me throw out a challenge. Who is your Nineveh? What do you run from? Who do you run from? Who are you afraid of? Is there something that God is wanting you to do or someone that God is wanting you to reach out to? Perhaps someone very different than you. So if chapter one can be entitled running away from God, chapter two we could call running back to God. So God, we saw, used the storm to get Jonah's attention, used the fish to spare his life, and sometimes God has to bring us through deep waters to really cause us to look up to him and to cry out to him, and perhaps some in here can identify a time in their life where they were really in a pit or in a valley, but God used that to cause you to look heavenward. And sometimes he does miraculous things in our lives to bring him glory through us. Well, in chapter two, we see that Jonah is praying to God from his heart, telling God how he felt there inside this fish. We see an attitude of thanksgiving, confession, repentance, hope, acknowledgement of God's chastening of him, promising to obey and worship, longing to be close to God again. And sometimes I've gone through valleys where I don't really feel God's presence. You know, I, I long to be close to him. And I realize that I usually got myself in that mess, but I long to be back close to God. And maybe some of you could identify that with that as well. But be encouraged, God does answer prayer. He answers Jonah's prayer. The fish coughs him up and um, God used him. And sometimes God wants us to maybe visit someone or witness to a certain individual, but for various reasons, we try to go the other way. We ignore him. It could be because we're frightened or we're too busy. Sometimes that's an excuse of mine. Well, I'm too busy. I've got some paperwork to do. I don't want to go visit this guy. But eventually, by his grace, God brings me to repentance and changes my mind. And by his grace, I can say, okay, God, I repent. I'll go do this. And God gives me peace and sometimes uses me in spite of myself, you know. So is there something God is calling you to repent of? You know, maybe you're doing things your own way or perhaps you have a fear or an anxiety about something or maybe hatred of other people, of certain other people or, or maybe, maybe failing to see uh, people from God's perspective with eyes of faith, what God might want to do in their life. Well, in chapter one, Jonah's running from God. Chapter two, he's running back to God. So chapter three, we might entitle it running with God. God gave Jonah a second chance and commanded him to go again. He repeated the command, go and preach judgment against Nineveh. He didn't say he was gonna save them or spare them. He just said, go preach judgment. It might have been an unpopular message to give. And sometimes when we share the gospel, we think, oh, that's an unpopular message. What are they gonna think of me, you know? But anyway, he went ahead and did it. Uh, he had cried out to God in prayer. He didn't really acknowledge that God might care for the Ninevites, but at least he was willing to go and obey him. <clears throat> and not only did God give Jonah a second chance, but he gave the Ninevites another chance too. So this one man, this one guy, Jonah, because of his simple message, you're gonna be destroyed in 40 days. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty basic, but pretty challenging. The prospect of judgment the entire nation repented, including the king, as I said earlier. 
And it got me to thinking, what would it be like in our nation here and also in the UK if our leaders had that sense of repentance, you know, from their ways, their wicked ways, whatever those, those individuals are, whatever they're involved with, you know, what if they repented and, and, the, uh, and the rest of us, the rest of the community or society followed suit? You know, here we see Nineveh, a wicked, brutal city, repenting. What would it be like if that happened in our community or our nation? Something to think about and pray about, perhaps. Anyway, God did see their repentant hearts. He didn't carry out the judgment that Jonah had proclaimed against them. And um, although the Israelites thought that God's blessing was only for them, they would soon learn that this wicked city had repented. God can indeed save the least likely. Uh, some of you, of course, would know about the Apostle Paul. He was uh, seeing to the persecution and even death of Christians in the early church, but God confronted him on the road to Damascus and saved him. Some of you might be aware of hundreds of thousands of Iranian, former Muslims, Iranian people around the world in Iran and here in this area as well as in the UK that have <coughs> left Islam and have become Christians. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, God used a very interesting thing. The Ayatollah Khomeini came into power, I think it was in 79 with the Islamic Revolution. And, you know, these people were very contented uh, Shiite Muslims, but because of the repressive regime that happened as a result of the Ayatollah, thousands and literally hundreds of thousands ba based on reports of her that have come to Christ in Iran and around the world in the diaspora. So God saved a people that might have been seen like the least likely. Also, too, studies have shown that in the West, in the U.S., perhaps, and in the U.K., that Muslims that do come to Christ, be they from uh, Libya or Pakistan or Bangladesh or Iran or wherever, oftentimes there are three significant factors that God uses to bring people from a Muslim background into a faith following Jesus. One is that they have gotten to know a genuine Christian. For them, they think that everything they see on television from the West is Christian material. Everybody in the West is a Christian in their view. And so when they see stuff in the media, they think, that's Christianity, I don't want to become a Christian. But when they get to know somebody genuine like you guys, you say, wow, that's what they're really like, you know? Uh, secondly, they've heard the word of God somehow or other. Maybe they've seen the Jesus film, perhaps they've seen something on Christian television program, Maybe you've had an opportunity to uh, read the Bible with them or uh, give them a tract or something, but God uses his word to save people. His word is powerful as the Holy Spirit ministers it into their lives. And sometimes, too, God will do miraculous things to get their attention. Um, sometimes they might have a significant answer to prayer. Uh, we know of somebody that Christians prayed for many years that the woman who was barren might have a baby, and she did. And God used that to bring the husband and wife uh, to Christ, the Pakistani family, uh, not through us, but just through other believers that had been involved with them. Sometimes they would have a dream or a vision, or maybe um, just a significant answer to prayer in their own, uh, you know, something they prayed themselves. <clears throat> but anyway, God can indeed save people who we might think are unlikely to be saved. Sorry, I'm getting a drink of water here. Now, even as um, 
Even as Jonah was preaching the certainty of God's judgment to the Ninevites, we need to realize that judgment is a certainty. Heaven and hell are reality, and I trust that's what you learn sometimes through the sermons and so forth here. But God wants to use you and me to bring the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to others, even the least likely. Uh, again, Scripture tells us that God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We know that the gospel transforms lives, it transforms society, and it brings hope of eternal life. So let me ask you, is God giving you another chance, even as he gave Jonah another chance, to reach out to someone that he's put into your sphere of influence, someone that you could bring the message of hope to? Um, it may be that, uh, to borrow from the book of Ruth, God has put you in this person's life for such a time as this, that you can tell them about Christ. Well, chapters one, two, and three, we saw running away from God, running back to God, running with God. Chapter four, we might entitle running ahead of God. So when Jonah realized that God was going to spare judgment on the Ninevites, as I said, he became very angry. It's as if he said, I knew it. I knew you'd be merciful to these people. Jonah didn't like the fact that God was gonna spare them. To use modern day language, I think Jonah was actually a racist or perhaps a hyper-nationalist, okay? You know, my people, we're the only way, or we have the, you know, we're, we're God's, uh, you know, God's special people, we're it, you guys are nothing. But um, he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew God would have mercy on them, on his enemies. He did not want their repentance, he wanted their doom. And this is quite contrary to the teaching of Scripture. You know, Jesus' example is very different. He says we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But Jonah was a hardliner, and he thought God was a bit too soft, and so he goes outside the city and sits down and sulks, and that's where you know, the, the plant grows up uh, around him to shade him. He still hadn't learned his lesson, but God in his graciousness did provide shade, and then he, of course, causes the plant to, to die, but that's to convict Jonah of his self-centered attitude, to show him that he was counting the importance of a, pl a plant as more important than people. So again, when the plant dies, Jonah gets very angry, and, and ironically, he feels pity for the plant, but he doesn't really feel pity for these people. Again, God rebukes him and says, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Well, we see in this that God's nature is gracious, he's merciful, He's slow to anger, he's abundant in loving kindness. He certainly was patient with me. I became a believer when I was in college at the age of 21, and after living a, a life that wasn't pleasing to him, God was patient with me and saved me. And perhaps many of you can have, share a similar story in your own journey toward Christ. But he's willing to relent when there is repentance. He wants to save people, even those that we might discount. So the lesson is God's, it's not about me, it's about God and his mercy, his purposes, his character, his plans for others. So again, the story of Jonah ends with that hanging question. God says, should I not feel sorry for that people? Again, there might be people in your spheres of influence that God wants to save. Are you willing to put up with some minor discomfort to, or to sacrifice or to step, step out of your comfort zone so that you, you can go talk to those people and they could hear about the gospel of Christ? Or do you struggle with 
racism or prejudice towards your neighbors, towards your enemy that God wants you to love. I believe that uh, in many times the church has been negligent in reaching out uh, to other parts of the world with the gospel, particularly to the Muslim world. So God in his providence has brought Muslims to our part of the world where they do have the freedom to hear about Jesus. And he's brought them to our doorstep as kind of a mission field. Um, so we're missionaries really with our, our mission field on our doorstep. And it might be that God has brought uh, Muslim refugees to the West, to England, to the USA, to be your neighbor for such a time as this. So let me leave that with you as a challenge that, um, you know, if there are um, maybe some bad attitudes or feelings of certainly not loving somebody very different than you, perhaps having really challenging views toward Muslims that God has brought into the country, you know, I would encourage you to repent of that and ask God to give you a love for these people and, and to give you opportunity to tell them about Christ and to enable you to love them uh, for such a time as this. Thank you.